What a sweet prayer. Thank you for shepherding us, brother. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. Open up to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. That's safe, right there. Okay. We are almost done with 1 Thessalonians. Cohen, you got us recording up there, buddy? Good to go? Okay. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. It'll be on page 988. Welcome to take that Bible home with you. Let's talk about logical fallacies, errors in thinking. One kind of logical fallacy is a false dichotomy. A false dichotomy is when someone assumes an either-or scenario when there is, in fact, another third non-contradictory option. So let me give you an example. Consider this popular saying, you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. Have you heard that before? It's kind of like, you know, silence is violence, that kind of thing. While there are some scenarios where this may be true, you're either part of the solution or part of this problem, most of the time, this is a false dichotomy. That is, in most circumstances, there are people involved that are not part of the solution and they are not part of the problem. They are just innocent third-party bystanders. In the realm of politics, uh, false dichotomies uh, rule the rhetorical day. That is, they're very common, they're very effective, even though they're logically unsound. I'll give you just one example that you've probably heard of before. Uh, think about the way that the abortion issue is often framed, as if we have to choose between caring about children inside of the womb or outside of the womb, as if there's not a third option where we can do both and should do both. And actually, if you look at the evidence, evangelical Christians have a pretty strong track record of actually doing both. Or consider the false dichotomies that are often presented by less than careful teachers of God's word, people who talk about the false dichotomies between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, as if God has to be completely sovereign and man can have no responsibility, or man must be completely responsible and therefore God has no sovereignty. Or we could talk about faith versus works and salvation and just keep on going down the line. One theological false dichotomy that is uh, too, too common in the church is that of the word versus the spirit. You're either a word-centered church or you're a spirit-centered church. My prayer is that by the end of this morning's sermon, you'll see that we don't have to choose between the Word of God and the Spirit of God. To the contrary, my prayer is that by the end of this morning's sermon, you'll see quite clearly that the most normal way that the Spirit of God works in the life of the church and in the lives of, in the lives of individual Christians is through the Word of God. So let me go ahead and read our text this morning, and then we will pray. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Father, we come before you with hungry and dependent hearts this morning. And we know that it is always your will to do us good. You are our Father, and you delight to give us good gifts. So, Father, would you bless us with a more clear understanding of your word this morning. Amen. I've got four points for you this morning. 
Here they are. Quench, one word. Despise, test, and connect. Quench, despise, test, and connect. Each one of these is related to a a phrase in this morning's text that might not be immediately clear that we're going to have to break down a little bit to make sure we understand what's going on. So let's let's look at point one, quench. Uh, This morning's verse starts off with the warning for the Thessalonians to not quench the Spirit, referring, of course, to the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean, quench the the Spirit? It's not self-evident when you read the text. Well, in order to answer that question, I need to talk to you about barbecue, okay? The experienced grill master, of whom I am the foremost, uh, will tell you that the flame in the grill must match the cut of meat that you're trying to cook on the grill, right? So for a brisket, you want a very tiny flame, maybe not even a flame, just hot coals, and you want to smoke it low, slow for a long time. In contrast, if you're cooking a good steak and you know what you're doing and you're not cooking it well done, which is a sin, you want the flames very hot so that you sear the outside of the steak. Now, sometimes when you're grilling, things get out of whack. They get out of hand. You've got to manage the flames. Sometimes you can be cooking burgers and all that grease from the meat drops down into the fire and pretty, before you know it, your little Weber grill is a burning inferno. What do you do to quench those flames? Put a little water on the fire so that they die down. Or the more skilled tactician will close the lid and close off some of the vents and rob the flames of some of their oxygen so that they are quenched. Either way, the point is we're quenching the flames on the grill. See what I'm getting at? To quench the spirit is to reduce his force, his potency. It's, it's to reduce the power of his presence in our lives. Another word for quench that people sometimes use is extinguish. Translators have chosen not to use that word here because extinguish makes it sound like you can put the fire out, right? Uh, But we know that that's not the case with the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can never completely extinguish his presence, even if we can reduce the, the felt power of his presence, We talked about this when we were walking through the book of Leviticus. If you remember, we talked a lot about the presence of God in the midst of Israel. And we said that the presence of God is is not best thought of in terms of like an on-off switch with the lights. Rather, you should think about the presence of God in the life of the believer and the life of the community of the church as a dimmer switch. You can turn that light down real low, but for the believer, the light never turns off. You can also turn it way up high. The way that we live our lives determines where the dimmer switch is set. Now, in this morning's text, Paul says that the Thessalonians were in danger of quenching the fires of the Holy Spirit by despising prophecy, which leads us to point number two, despise. Yet another phrase where we don't really know what it means. What does it mean to despise prophecy? Well, simply put, it means to reject God's revelation. God speaks to his people, his people reject it. Now, you remember what prophecy is, of course. Prophecy is when God communicates his word to his people through a messenger. 
right? So the prophet in this view is like the mouthpiece of God. God's in heaven. He's not here. How is he going to speak to us? He speaks through the prophet. The prophet is the megaphone in the hand of God as he communicates lovingly, faithfully, his word to his people. Now, if that is what prophecy is, God lovingly communicating to his people, why would his people ever despise him, uh, despise prophecy? Why would they ever not want that? Why would they reject it? Well, there are a whole bunch of reasons. Most of them sinful, some of them not so much. But you can just consider Jesus, right? Jesus came as the ultimate prophet with the final word from God to us for salvation. And everywhere that he went, he communicated God's word and people rejected him left and right. So maybe a a narrower question that would be more helpful this morning would be, why were the Thessalonians inclined to reject God's word? Why were they, it seems like Paul feels like they are on the trajectory towards, or maybe they're already in the habit of, despising prophecy. Why were the Thessalonians so inclined? We just don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Nowhere else in 2 Thessalonians do we really get a clue of what's happening. But I think we may be able to kind of get there uh, from verse 21. Look at verse 21. In verse 20, he says, do not despise prophecies. In verse 21, he says, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Perhaps the Thessalonians had begun to despise prophecy because they had been previously burned by false prophets. Anytime there's genuine spiritual activity amongst the people of God, it is almost always accompanied by counterfeit spiritual activity. And as prophets, Paul Paul himself being a prophet, as prophets came to the church in Thessalonica and communicated God's word to God's people, it makes sense that there would then be false prophets. If you read about the early church, you can see that even in the very first document outside of the New Testament, the Didache, the church is very concerned in how, how to discern between a true and a false prophet. They want to make sure that these people who are coming and saying, hey, I got a word from the Lord for you, that they're not lying because there were an, an abundance of false prophets. So maybe some prophets came along saying, hey, I see that you guys are going through persecution. I see what you're enduring, and I want you to know that God says that you're not going to have to go through this much longer. Your suffering is about to be over with. Your time is up. You've done a good job. And then maybe the persecution didn't stop. Maybe the affliction continued. Now, if you... If, if this were you, if you were in this situation, you and let's just say 50 other new believers, and you're in this church, you had just come out of paganism, you're r- really just beginning to wrap your mind about, around what prophecy is, and someone comes and they burn you with a false prophecy. Do you think you would have the spiritual wherewithal to say, you know what? Okay, that hurt. That, that broke my trust a little bit. But I'm not going to throw prophecy away entirely. See, I have to separate in my mind the difference between a false prophet, someone who abused this gift, someone who lied to me, and the true gift. Do you think you'd have the spiritual wherewithal to make that distinction? I probably wouldn't. Guys, I can't tell you how often I talk to people who say that they don't want to have anything to do with the church because they were hurt by the church, as if they can't separate 
you know, a false church from a true church or an unhealthy church from a healthy church. That's just the way we operate. We're hurt by something and we just want to cast it aside entirely. Maybe that's what happened here. I'm not sure. But if that is what happened, if you were in that scenario and you were inclined to despise prophecy because of something like this, maybe Paul would come to you like the good pastor that he is and he would try to help you think more clearly. And he would say, hey, listen, don't despise prophecy. Just because you were hurt by the abuse of a particular gift doesn't mean you need to throw that gift away. Instead, you need to learn how to test prophecy, which leads me to point number three, test. Will, this water tastes funny. I don't know what you're doing. If you're trying to slowly poison me, but this is not good. So what does Paul mean when he tells the Thessalonians that they have to test prophecy? Uh, first, I'm going I'm, I'm to lay out one view, and then I'm going to give you the right view, okay? But this first view is super common, so I have to interact with it. Some people understand Paul to mean that by testing prophecy, we have to sift the words of the prophet as he prophesies to differentiate in his message between that which is true and that which is false, that which is good and that which is bad. So let me give you an example of what that might look like according to this view. Someone in the church would stand up and say, I have a word from the Lord. People would say, okay, go ahead. Then the person would stand up and deliver their prophecy. And in the New Testament, a prophet could have been a man or a woman. They stand up and deliver their prophecy with the congregation. And then members of the church, the congregation, they would be sitting there and they would listen, discerning, paying careful attention, filter, engaged. And in the same way that a gold miner would sift a, 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 a big chunk of mud in the bottom of the river to try to extract a little bit of gold, the valuable gold from the mud, the congregation would listen to the words of the prophet and try to sift and extract the good and true things from God and separate it from the bad things, like someone separates the wheat from the chaff. This is an incorrect view of what Paul is saying here. First of all, it should be noted that there is no example of any kind anywhere in your Bibles of partially correct prophecy. There is no such thing of a prophet in the Old Testament or the New Testament who delivers a prophecy that is a mixture of truth and error. There's only a true prophet who says true things and a false prophet who says false things. Secondly, you have to remember what prophecy is. A prophecy is a direct communication from God. So there's never a mixture of truth and error when God communicates to us as his people. He never says something that's partially incorrect. Remember, if you read your Old Testament, whenever the prophet prophesies, how does it begin? If you read the King James, thus saith the Lord, right? And that's the prophet's way of saying, what I'm saying to you right now is not my own idea. These are not my thoughts, my intuitions. These are not my moral values. This is from the God of heaven. Listen to the way that 1 Peter describes the way that, function, the way that prophecy functions, okay? He's, he's giving us the mechanics of it all. He says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever 
ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is precisely because of this definition of what prophecy is, God speaking through the prophet to his people, that prophecy cannot contain error. Okay, so if that's not what it means, well then what does it mean? Well, it means what it's always meant. There's always been prophets in the Old Testament and God has always given his people a way to test what the prophet says. If the prophet says something is going to come to pass and it comes to pass, then he's a true prophet. If the prophet says something is going to come to pass and it doesn't come to pass, then he's a false prophet, which, by the way, is a pretty big deal and it carries a very severe penalty. Deuteronomy 18.22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord, he's saying, God says this. If the word does not come to pass or come true, this is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. So let me give you an example of, of how this might work uh, in our own day. At the, at the end of our last election cycle, just, just a few weeks ago, you guys remember, we were all there, there was a fervor of Christian nationalism. And there was a streak to this Christian nationalism that was prophetic in nature. And there were all these guys standing up in their pulpits on Sunday mornings, writing their blog articles, going on public radio, doing their podcasts. Trump's going to be elected for a second term. That's what they were all saying. God told them. That's how they knew. Trump wasn't elected. Now, some of these supposed prophets have remained silent in the days after the election. You know, what do you do if you're a celebrity and you get me too'd? You know, you just kind of back off into silence for a couple years, then hopefully you can kind of have a resurgence out of the dark and hope nobody remembers the bad things that you did. That's the tactic that some of these false prophets have taken after the election of Joe Biden. Others have tried to say that they got part of it right and they got part of it wrong. That's the kind of mixture of truth and error like I just talked about. But still others have said that their prophecies were actually true and were it not for the rigged election, their words would have been shown to be truly from God. Now here's the thing. Not one of these supposed prophets has come out and said, I repent. I thought I heard something from God and I was wrong. And I repent in the dust. In the Old Testament, if you were shown to be a false prophet, you would have been stoned to death. If that seems severe to you, I think that's because you have a very low view of who God is and what his word means to us as people. The reason why they would have been stoned to death is because a prophet is a direct, excuse me, a prophecy is a direct word from the holy God of the universe. And to say that God has said something that he has in fact not said is a capital offense. So friends, when it comes to thinking about testing prophecy, some people think about it like eating a bony fish. You know, you, you, you put the piece in your mouth, you try to pick out the tiny bone that could kill you and get lodged in your throat, and you try to eat the meat. You take the good and leave the bad. That's not how this works. When Paul says test the, prophet, the prophets, test the prophecies, what he means is examine the whole fish and see if it's good to eat or if it's rotten. Point number four, connecting the dots. 
Actually, it's connect, but in my notes, it's connecting the dots. Okay. Uh, before moving on to the kind of last half of the sermon, which is really just all application, uh, I need to address what I think might be uh, a question that some people might have according to my interpretation of these verses. Because what I've said is that the, the Thessalonians uh, are on the verge of quenching the Spirit because they're despising prophecy, or they're, you know, they're on that road. But if you read the text, it doesn't actually say that. It says, do not quench the Spirit, period. Not in the Greek, but you get what I'm saying. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies. So some people may say, Sean, where are you connecting the verse? There's no by here. These could just be independent clauses, independent ideas. I don't think they are, and I want to show you why. In order to do that, we have to talk about the connection between the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Now, it's not uncommon for modern Christians, really just in the last hundred years, to think about the work of the Spirit as happening primarily through signs and wonders, right? Miracles. Wherever the Spirit of God is at work, we're going to see signs and wonders. But I don't think that's accurate for three reasons. These are kind of some sub-points. So the first reason is historically. When you look at salvation history throughout the Bible, you just, you see the Spirit working in every page. Everywhere that something amazing is happening, the Spirit of God is at work. But you only see signs and wonders in small clusters throughout the story of the Bible. Actually, I should say big, but few clusters. You see them with Moses in the Sinai Desert, in the exile, uh, excuse me, in the Exodus event, and then you see them with the apostles, and then you see some kind of peppered in here or there. You just don't see signs and wonders all over the place. Nevertheless, the Spirit of God is always at work. On top of that, when you move outside of the Bible and you look at church history, you see that miraculous events are pretty sparse. There are not a lot of signs and wonders once you leave the New Testament. That doesn't mean that God can't or doesn't do it. He absolutely does. And if you want to hear some stories, I've got like a thousand for you. But when you read the early fathers, when you read the late fathers, when you read medieval church history, when you read Reformation church history, where the Spirit of God was alive and active, like I think no other time other than the the days of the book of Acts, when you read post-Reformation church history, you see the Spirit of God is alive and well. Nevertheless, signs and wonders are few and far between. The second reason why I don't think this holds up is experiential in nature. Think about how much the Holy Spirit works in your life. Think about how much work the Holy Spirit does every single day dealing with your sorry butt. I mean, loving you, helping you to be more like Jesus, right? Think about how active the Holy Spirit is in your life. And compare that to the volume of signs and wonders that you personally experience as a Christian. And then finally, theologically. You just see it all throughout the Bible that whenever the Spirit of God works, He works through the Word of God. I'm going to give you two examples. First example is of creation. In the beginning, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. The Spirit was the active agent in creation. But what did He use to bring about His creative purposes? Well, John 1, 1 through 3 tells us. In the beginning was the Word. And that in the beginning should hearken you back to Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now listen to this. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. 
So as God the Father created the universe, ex nihilo, out of nothing, through God the Spirit, he accomplished that by using God the Word. But the Trinity and creation, I know that's kind of... Let me, let me give you a, maybe a little bit uh, easier example here. Let's consider the doctrine of salvation. John chapter 3 is very clear that the Spirit of God is the agent of regeneration. I'm going to read to you from John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What Jesus is saying here is, listen, in order to be born again, the Spirit has to come in you and do something. He has to give you a rebirth. But you have to remember that, strictly speaking, regeneration doesn't save us. The rebirth is not the same thing as salvation. Regeneration is what God does to fix our hearts so that we can hear the Word of God and believe it and thus be saved. If God does not regenerate us by His Holy Spirit, we will not receive His Word. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. What does a natural person mean? It's, it's a person who hasn't been born again. They cannot receive the Word of God. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So regeneration is the work of the Spirit wherein he gives us a new heart so that we can hear the Word of God and receive it and be saved. That's why the psalmist says things like, Open my eyes, O God, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. The psalmist knows, left to my flesh, I can't behold wonderful things. It's just going to ricochet off of me. I need your spirit to do this in my life. The point here is that the work of the spirit has no material to work with if the spirit of God is not present. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 10, when he's talking about how salvation comes to us. He says this, How can they call on the one in whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? That is, preaching the word of God. Paul is saying, listen, the Spirit can be doing his thing, all the, everything can be just right in order for someone to be saved, but if God's word doesn't come, they won't be saved. The Spirit of God needs the word of God in order to accomplish the salvation of God. And then he goes on, actually a little earlier in Romans 5, he says, Consequently, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So friends, when you understand that the Spirit of God works through the word of God in order to accomplish the will of God amongst the people of God, then it makes perfect sense that what Paul is saying here is that they are quenching the Spirit by rejecting the word. All right. Last half of the sermon, we're going to dig into the application now, before I dig into this application, I need to tell you that I'm approaching this text as a cessationist. If you don't know what that means, basically it just means that I think that these the sign gifts like tongues and prophecy are no longer active in the church today. I think they were active for a very particular reason in the life of the early church. I don't think that they're active today. What that means is that the way that I try to apply this verse today is going to be different than maybe you if you think that these gifts are still active if you're here this morning and you're charismatic and you're like, 
Uh, Sean, I've never thought about that before. Uh, can we talk about that some? I've got some resources I can share with you uh, if you want. But I want you to know that in the life of this church, we've talked about continuationism versus cessationism at length for like the last year. We're not going to rehash that whole thing this morning. I just want you to know the perspective that I'm coming from as I communicate this to you. All right, let's dig in. First point, let's see, I got, I got starting back at number one again, you see, for the application. The first point for application is despising. Despising. So, I got to switch out the water. Can't do Will's water. It's tainted. Although God's word no longer comes to us by way of prophecy, that doesn't mean that we don't have them. The words of the apostles and prophets are with us today, right here. This is the record of all of God's word that have come to God's people that we need to know in order to live out a godly life. The most common way, therefore, that we can despise prophecy in our own modern day, where prophecy no longer exists, is by despising scripture. That's, that's the application. So let's, let's drill down a little bit more now. I'm going to give you two ways this morning that you can despise scripture. The first one is by not making time for it. Just not making time for God's word. You know, we, we prioritize social media. And by the way, when I say we here, that's not just like me trying to, you know, we, we're in this together. When I say we, I mean I am under the pangs of conviction as I preach this to you. Uh, and I have been all week as I've been preparing this sermon. You know, I barely could get up here and preach it. I thought, I need somebody who, who spends more time in the Bible to come up and say what I'm about to say, because I don't know if I can say it in good conscience. But we, we prioritize social media time. We prioritize our careers. Staying late at the office again, huh? Could, no, no, no time for God and his word. Been there, done that. Waking up first thing in the morning. Getting right on social media. Been there, done that. We prioritize good things like family time over time with God's word. Uh, family's in town this week. Yeah, they don't want to come to church, so I'm going to hang out with them instead of being there with you and with, with God's people, hearing God's word, singing God's word, praying God's word. I've got to spend time with the family. We can prioritize so many things that are not as valuable as God's word. And here's the thing, we always make time for what we care about. So ultimately, us despising God's word, what it comes down to is an issue of the heart. It's an issue of our affections not being where they should be. And so I think we have to ask ourselves the question, Sean, how can my affections be stirred for the word of God? Well, first answer, easy answer, probably not a very emotionally satisfying answer, is just being obedient you don't, you don't feel like it, that's kind of not really part of the equation, you know? I don't feel like getting up and, you know, making food for my kids today, but that's not really part of the equation. I don't feel like giving my money to the bank to, to pay the bank note on my house. I would rather have that money to go do something else, but my feelings about that are just inconsequential. When you understand that God is calling you to have a relationship with Him, and one of the main ways that that happens is by communicating with Him in His Word, then... Sometimes your feelings should be part of the equation, but most of the time, that might just be a nerve that you need to kill and just focus on being obedient. Uh, 
There's a bunch of other ways that we can stir our affections. Right now, I'm reading Dane Ortland's fantastic book, which is over there in the bookstall, Gentle and Lowly. It has just reinvigorated my love for Christ. The more I read of that book, the more I see of Christ, the more I'm like, man, I got to get back in here. There's, there's, there's just, I'm never going to get to the bottom of how good God is. Sometimes a really good book can do that for you. And uh, that book, Gentle and Lowly, over there in the bookstall, for $10 can do that for you. Do you know how much that book costs at Amazon? 21. Is it 18? Really? Okay, you made me second guess myself. $21. The church is taking $11, an $11 hit per book just because that's how much I believe in that book and I want you to read it because I think it'll do good for your soul. Okay. Maybe for you it's uh, listening to sermons. Maybe there's one preacher who, when you listen to him, he just, he just stirs your affection for God in a way that nobody else can. For most people, that's just John Piper. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but maybe you've got somebody else. Maybe it's just listening to a good sermon that makes you love God more. Maybe it's just rehearsing your testimony again. You know, you go out to lunch after church, instead of talking about Alabama football, maybe you can just go, oh, Jacob, I've never heard your testimony, man. Would you share your testimony with the group? And then you do, and as you think about God's grace in your life, you just, you just fall in love with him all over again, and that drives you back to spend time with him and his word. I don't have an exact prescription for you. You know, for every person in this room, it's going to be different. But I do know this. If you want to love God more, that takes intentionality. The words of Colossians 3 say this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly, not barely, not when you have time for it, not a verse a day. Richly, how can you do that if you're not being intentional? My prayer is that we would all be like the psalmist who says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I don't much care for honey. Maybe for me, that would be like better than a Daylight's Donuts, you know, like better than a, uh, you know, Reese's Pieces, Reese Cup, you know, the ones with the Reese's Pieces inside the cup. Anyways, I'm getting off track. Okay. Now, uh, so I'm about to talk out of both sides of my mouth. You ready? I just got through saying basically we're all guilty. None of us love God's word like we're supposed to. We should repent and do better. Okay. Now, here comes the other side. Guys, I'm really proud of you. I'm really blown away by this church. As I was preparing this point, I felt like this needs to be said, but I also felt like, man, I don't want my people to walk away from this feeling like I was flogging them, like most people feel when they come away from a conversation like this. Like, duh, of course I need to be in God's word more. Thanks for hitting me over the head with that stick yet again. Okay, it's true, and you do need to be hit. But let me also say that as far as sinners go, I think this church loves God's word I don't even have a word for it. I should have had a word in my notes. But, I mean, the way that you guys prioritize God's word, being here on Wednesday nights, making time to be here on Sunday morning, the good books that you read, the sermons that I know that you consume, the conversations that you guys have, even just the fact that you're a member of this church. Guys, I haven't said this in a while, so let me say it again. I know that this church is not an easy church to be a member of if you've never experienced something like this before. I know that a lot of you have come from churches where from the second you step into the door to the second you leave, the only objective of the people in that church is to keep you entertained. It's to keep you emotionally revved up, to get you excited for Jesus. And man, we're going to go out and we're going to change the world and we're just going to keep our emotion at a fever pitch all the time. 
That's their only objective when you come in on a Sunday morning. It's part of the music that they play. It's part of the way that they pray. There's, there's never going to be a 10-minute prayer because people can't tolerate that and it will quell the emotion. It's part of the way that the pastors preach. And yet here you are on a Sunday morning where the main thing that we have to offer you is God's word. We choose our songs based off of how close they are to the truth of God's word and how much they can help us to love God's word and how much they reinforce God's word. We pray prayers where I have meetings with Mike Cantrell on a Saturday and we talk about how he can make his prayer more connected to the truth of God's word. My sermons are long and they are dedicated entirely to helping you better understand God's word, to love God's word and to apply God's word. We read very long passages of scripture in this church because I think that 20 minutes or 10 minutes or even five minutes of reading scripture will do more good for your soul than an extra five minutes of me preaching and giving out my own opinions. This is a word-centered church. And if you're here, it's because you value God's word. You value it above all else. You value it more than entertainment. You, more, you value it more than how close you are to this building. I know that some of you have to drive really far to be here. But you value God's word. So be encouraged. I am. Okay. Another way that you can despise God's word is by not treating it as sufficient. Every member of this church believes that God's word is true. You signed a statement of faith when you joined the church that says such. Hopefully you wouldn't sign it unless you believed it. But here's the thing. A lot of Christians, a lot of churches, many denominations say that they believe God's word is true, but then live as if it doesn't really have anything to say to us about how we order our lives. They don't treat God's word as sufficient. They think God's word has a lot to say about how you can be saved, but then after that, we just got to kind of figure it out as we go. Friends, Scripture does not tell us everything we need to know. Scripture does not tell you how to do geometry and calculus, but it does tell you how to do geometry and calculus to the glory of God. Scripture doesn't tell you which job you should choose, which career field you should pursue, but it does tell you how you can faithfully fulfill the great commission that Jesus has given to you. God's word tells us everything that we need to know for life and godliness, both individually and as a church. Listen to Timothy, uh, excuse me, listen to Paul explain this truth to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He says, the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, got that. That's the how do I get saved part. We're there, we're tracking, right? But now he's going to get to sufficiency. All Scripture is God-breathed, Remember that? That's kind of like the prophecy part, right? Carried along by the Spirit, all the words of the prophets. Here he says all Scripture is breathed out by God. Then he says, and is useful. This is what sufficiency has to deal with. Do you think God's Word is useful? Paul says it is. It's for useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped, not a little equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is in stark contrast to the way so many Christians, churches, denominations, seminaries treat the Word of God. 
They don't think it is sufficient. They don't think it has all that we need pertaining to life and godliness and to equip us for every good work. So how can you know that you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? Well, how heavily do you lean on it? If you're going through an issue with your marriage, do you look first to God's Word for answers or do you look somewhere else? You're training up your children. Is God's Word the main parenting manual that you use or is it some best-selling book that you got from the New York Times parenting book list? If you're thinking through a major, major financial decision in your life, do you first consult with the Wall Street Journal or even Dave Ramsey or whoever or do you ask, does God's word have anything to say about this? Ooh, I'm about to load myself down with tremendous debt. God doesn't care. Or maybe he does. You're trying to evangelize a friend or a family member. Do you rely more on God's word in that evangelism or clever arguments? We despise God's word when we say that it's true and then act like it has nothing whatsoever to say about how we should order our lives. Brothers and sisters, although the prophets are no longer among us, God's word is. And if we want the fires of the Holy Spirit to roar in our hearts, we need to fill ourselves up with God's word. We don't want to limp all the way to heaven with just the, the tiniest light of the Holy Spirit illuminating the path to eternity. That's not what we want. We want the fires of the Holy Spirit to be roaring in our lives, making our path clear and easy to navigate. Subpoint number two, testing. So basically, if there are no prophets anymore, then how does this idea of testing the prophets apply to us in the church? Well, simply put, it's just by comparing whatever the preachers and teachers and evangelists are saying in the life of the church with what God has already said. I'm standing up here this morning, I'm trying to communicate God's word to you, but I'm still a human being. And uh, there's a lot more of my word in this morning's sermon than God's word. That's just kind of part of the way preaching is. So your responsibility as a member of this church and just as a Christian is to evaluate what I say or what Will says or what Grant says or what Jonathan says. Or if you're in a ladies' Bible study, whoever's leading your ladies' Bible, you know, Allison, when she was leading that, what she says, you take that and you compare it against what God has already said in his word and you see if it lines up. I need to give you two disclaimers about this. First disclaimer, I don't mean that you need to be actively cynical and suspicious of your teachers in the church. You know, you're sitting there, mm-hmm, boy, don't you slip for a second because I'm going to get you, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about charitably, graciously, humbly listening to fallible men do their best to try to be faithful. And when they miss the mark, having a conversation about it, Okay. I don't want discernment police in this church. There's like a whole, you can have like your online discernment blog ministry where you attack anyone. and You can have that, but if you do, you probably just go to a different church, okay? Uh, number two, don't trust your own infallible interpretations. I mean, that is to say, don't think that your interpretation of the teaching of the Word of God is infallible. Don't think that you understand it best when like, you know, the guy who's been trained for this and appointed by God to this in the congregation don't assume that your interpretation is automatically right and that his or her interpretation, depending on the context, is automatically wrong. 
If you think someone in the church is teaching something false, let me give you a kind of hierarchy of, of steps to take to deal with that, okay? To test the prophecy. Um, these are not exact. This, you won't always have to walk through this order, but this is just a general guideline. First, pray about it. Lord, I think, I think what they're saying here is not right. I'm not sure, though. Can you help me to, to better understand? Give me wisdom, God. Then maybe do some research on your own. You know, go back and study the passage, get a commentary, find a book about it if you think it's that big of a deal. Maybe you disagree with something I say and you think, ah, it doesn't matter. But if you think it's a big deal, do some research. And then maybe after that, if you're still concerned, consult a counselor, you know, somebody who will give you objective feedback. Hey, man, uh, my pastor said something on Sunday. I've, 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 I've studied it. I try to give him the benefit of the doubt, but it seems super wrong and super dangerous, and I'm worried about it. And I just, I need to talk to you to make sure that I'm not crazy, make sure that I'm not missing something. So can, I'm not trying to attack him, but can you just make sure that I'm, that I'm in the right here, Okay. And then if that goes well, and if the issue isn't resolved, then you go to that teacher in person and talk to him. Hey, man, you said this thing, and I, I don't know. I just can't let it go. I, I don't know if that's right. Am I missing something? Can you help me see something that, that I'm not seeing right now? And then if that doesn't work, then you take it to the elders and then finally to the church. Now, let me give you a quick example, real quick example, of how this works in the life of our own church. Uh, this Wednesday in our Bible study, uh, I spoke up in uh, response to something that Jonathan said, and uh, Tim Norton heard what I said, and because I'm a pastor, when I say something like that, you know, a little bit more weight is there, and he came up to me after the Bible study, and he said, hey, when you said that, uh, do you have any scripture for that? You know, and he, didn't, he wasn't like, hey, <laughs> pastor, I got a question. You know, Can you prove it? That, he wasn't suspicious. He wasn't hostile. It was just genuine brotherly love and like, hey, yeah, I've never heard that before, you know, and I'm, I'm not sure what to think about that. Can you help me to see that from God's word? I think that's the most normal way that this kind of thing plays out in the life of the church. Having said that, so that's the most normal way. The most profound way that this text applies to us today is in the person of Jesus Christ himself. Listen to these words from Hebrews Chapter 1, verse 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Even as the book of Hebrews is being written, it seems like the prophets are beginning to die out. God spoke to us by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Friends, you need to know this morning that Jesus is God's final word. Jesus is the fullness of revelation from God. It is the final offer, offer of salvation. Jesus is not only the prophet, he is the prophecy himself. And he came to us. The word of God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that we rejected him. Isaiah 53 says that he was despised and rejected by men. And not only did we reject the eternal word of God, but we rejected him in the most severe way possible. Isaiah continues, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
Friends, we not only rejected the word of God, we murdered him. We killed the one who came to save us. We're like, we're like people who have been res- rescued by a hostage negotiator who then turned around and killed the negotiator. It doesn't make any sense, but that's what we did as human beings when God's word came to us. So let me just be as clear as I can possibly be this morning before we close the sermon. If you reject Jesus today, if you despise the final prophecy from God, you are rejecting the only hope of salvation for your soul. You cannot quench the Holy Spirit by rejecting Jesus because if you reject Jesus, you will never have the Holy Spirit. So friends, you have heard the word of truth this morning. Every single person in this room, as you depart from this building, has to say that you have heard the truth of God's word. Will you receive it? Let's pray. Father, we come before you once again, delighted that not only have you spoken to us, but that we get to speak to you. Sometimes when we talk to you, Lord, we feel like we don't know what to say. And we're so thankful that you don't judge us for that. We thank you that you listen to us as we feebly try to communicate with you. Father, we pray that as you have spoken to us this morning, you will also bless us by those words. And we ask this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.